You must teach boys that in order to show congratulations like a male, you have to violently shake. You have to violently shake your friend. Jesus Christ, Doc! You disintegrated Einstein. Disintegrated Einstein. Einstein. Welcome to Science of the Movies, a podcast that looks at the role of science in some of our best loved and most hated movies. I'm Abby. I'm Frida. And this week's movie is Apollo 13. My one and only space movie. Yeah. Like a big one too, man. (laughs) Yeah. Welcome back. Welcome back after our break. Yes, welcome back after the break. (laughs) What a fine break. Uh, That joke's going to get very old. (laughs) When we yeah. record ahead of time and I pretend that the break was fantastic. Yeah, it was lovely. How was your time off? What did you do? Remained in lockdown. Oh. But you know, when you watch Graham Norton and he records the uh, New Year's Eve episodes and the Christmas episodes before Christmas. <laughs> and they're all saying, what did you get for Christmas? <laughs> and everyone's just going, uh, it's great. It's it's an um, oldie but a goodie. Yeah. Anyways, so we have some. Um, anyways, before we get into this movie, do we have any? Do we have any academic news, science news, Abby? <laughs> I I have a little rant. <laughs> You've got a little rant. Want my rant. I, I want your rant. Tell me. I have been <laughs> in a two-day online conference which has been a bit intense Mm. and it started at like 8am each day because it was like Paris time and it was one of these random things where it was 10 minute presentations so like legit six presentations in an hour because they were like on time you know it was like the the speaker's (laughs) talking and they're like you've got two minutes left no discussion time next presentation go 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 because then we had like our breaks were breakout discussion rooms anyway the first day I was sitting there watching the talks and the first 12 talks were men like look the whole fucking speaker list was like mostly men and maybe four women the first 12 talks were men went totally fine one guy's lost connection he dropped out the other guy started his talk at the end of it the other fella came back and finished fine no issues so speaker number 13 was a woman and then as soon as she started talking next thing you just hear these noises because some fucker's mic is still turned on. And all it was was just like the... (coughs) But it kept happening all the way throughout her 10-minute presentation. (laughs) And at the end of her 10-minute presentation, he was like... (coughs) And then obviously realized and turned his mic off. And I was just like, hang on a second. You made it through 12 fucking presentations without making a single noise or without having your mic turned on. And then the one presentation by a woman, you either can't keep control of your throat or you've somehow turned your mic on. <laughs> I, I just, I was so confused. I was like, I, I don't get how this is happening right now. And maybe it was an unfortunate incident that it happened yeah, when it was the okay. only woman. But I, all I could do was I was sitting there and I was just like, are you fucking serious right now? Are you actually serious <laughs> that this, this is happening? It drove me crazy. That's What's my the saying? Don't attribute to malice what can be what can be explained by incompetence. 
It's called ha- Hanlon's <laughs> razor. What never attribute to malice right. that which is adequately explained by stupidity, right? But you yeah. know, sometimes you're like, <laughs> but I know a thing or two about the world, and I don't believe in yeah. coincidences. <laughs> right. It was too perfectly timed that it was like, um, I don't want to say you're doing this on purpose, but are you doing this on purpose? Because what? Anyway, that's my, that was my science life from my, my two day online conference where my brain is now fried. Um, how's your science world? Well, they don't like women in academia. (laughs) I'm not sure they like women anywhere, but... (laughs) Academia seems to concoct a little like a bubble around itself and still maintain this like serious resentment of women and their caring roles. <laughs> this is we're repeating this rant episode after episode. <laughs> but yes, women generally care for children. Women generally have body problems they're away from work because pregnancy yes they have periods once a month and some women's periods are really difficult and they have to be off work every month oh my god what's gonna happen when women (laughs) become part of the world we have to deal with all this stuff it's like yes you have to deal with all this stuff but can i please be allowed to stay in academia is that okay with everybody check with all the men what we are allowed to do next Academia thinks they've solved the whole problem by adding a section in fellowship applications that says, did you take a career break? (laughs) Did you take a career break and why? (laughs) Right? Because that that solves all the problems because it's like, yes, I took two years to have all my children. And then I came back. I'm like, no, I never took a career break. You know why? Because I needed money. (laughs) They're so self-congratulatory that they ask the question of, explain your career break and then they recalculate how many years you are post phd factoring in your career break and they're like oh we're so pro women we're amazing all the women will now be kicking down the door it's like "Eh, it didn't work (laughs) here i am now i'm 35 see do you know what happens with men when they turn 35 nothing it's like a hiccup someone goes happy birthday and they're like oh yeah it's my birthday (laughs) basically feels the same as last year ugh (laughs) <laughs> now that we've ranted our way into Apollo 13 I have a question for you Abby did you just say that we've ranted, ranted our way into Apollo <laughs> ranted oh, I thought you said rounded I was like how did we link through we've there we've ranted our way into Apollo 13 we're going to carefully duck now into the episode 20 meters 10 meters weirdly scrape against the sides galaxy quest style and we've made a hard lock. And I'll ask you, Abby. Abby, Apollo 13, does this movie hold any place in your heart? Sorry, I'm really enjoying Freedom doing a space movie. <laughs> <laughs> Docking procedures, loving it. Answer my fucking question. Um, all right, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, no. What? I mean, I saw it when it first came out and I really liked it and I've just never seen it since. Wow. Um, I saw it when it came out. I remember so well sitting in the cinema and the scene where they're entering and they're really hot and I'm like, my father was maybe next to me. Either we watch it on holidays on video or I don't know. My father would have never taken me to the movies. (laughs) There's no way. 
<laughs> we were sitting in the cinema. Okay, we watched it on tape. Anyway, so and I just remember them being them, them sweating, and I'm like, "Why are they sweating? I don't get it. They're in space." And he explained it, and that went over my head until Abby came along and really explained it. But um, when I was little, we used to go skiing, and I had the habit of turning my helmet upside, like wearing it backwards, so that the um, the neck strap or the chin strap looked like a radio like it was like a space helmet with a radio <laughs> and i would say houston we have a problem <laughs> oh frida <laughs> what it's a special uh, oh i'm special <laughs> so let's give a summary shall we of apollo 13 yes please april do. 11 1970. You can tell because Marilyn has a headscarf in this scene. <laughs> the Beatles are broken up and America is at war. Another moon mission. Who cares? It was only mentioned in the weather page on the New York Times. But of course, as things took a dramatic turn, the nation quickly turned its attention to the Apollo 13 mission. Tom Hanks, Bill Paxton and Kevin Bacon play the ill-fated astronauts as they work against all the odds to manoeuvre back home to Earth. American ingenuity at its finest. They play whack-a-mole to get home to other women. And we'll go into the details later. So I guess I'll ask you, Abby. Okay. Do you like Apollo 13? I do. I do like it. Yeah, me too. I, I kind of... It's really funny because I feel like I'm just echoing basically something that you said about Blade Runner. <laughs> Where, like, towards the end, I started tuning out. I was just kind of like, wasn't, and I kept having to rewind like what? 10 minutes and kind of go, no, I have to watch that scene what? again. <laughs> That's so funny. I don't know. Maybe I was busy. It's funny because <laughs> it is like two hours and 20 minutes. And like you mm. said with Blade Runner, I was like, yeah, like I was on the edge of my seat the whole time. I never was bored for one second. I didn't feel the time at all. I was just like, what, America? Yes. Like, I really love this movie. I think it's such a good movie movie. Mm. Yeah, just, no, it is. That's, that's so very well true. Though. It is such a good and movie. Take all the, yeah. And it's of a time. It's that like, it's that, it's, it's got a feel to it. And maybe it's just like a nostalgia mm. feel. It's it's but a nineties yeah, disaster like film, it. and it's a really good one. Like it just is. It takes all these little technical stories and turns it into this like drama. Like where you like under twenty amps, whatever that means. The lines are going to twenty. Oh, yeah. There's a couple of scenes, all right, where it's just like, uh, and because we've learned so much from like doing this podcast, there's a couple of scenes where I was just kind of like, well, I don't believe that's real, but yeah, dramatic effect. <laughs> and it's for so sure. good. Um, okay, is it any before we talk about crew cast yada yada? Any anything in particular you want to highlight about the movie that isn't in the scope of science and all that uh, themes of science? Um. So. I, yeah, I've got just got two scenes. Go for it. I guess kind of two two things to pull out really. So the first one is that um, I genuinely got emotional at the beginning when they were showing the walking on the moon mm. opening shots when they're all gathered yeah. in the house. And I was trying to think about like why do I feel emotional about something like this? Like it doesn't have any real bearing on me. 
And I think it's just, there's certain things that happen in the world that we know happen that we can never, ever experience. Mm. Like we can never know what that moment was it gives, like. It, it gives you the chills. My my yeah, mother, exactly. That's it, the chills. you know, ha- has such strong memories of the moon landing. I actually think it might have been the peak of civilization. Wow. Just imagine the hope. Imagine what that felt like. I digress. Yeah. We're not talking yeah. about Apollo 13. We're talking about, a, I'm not talking about Apollo 11. We're talking about Apollo 13. But you yeah, said you had exactly. two scenes. What was the other scene? Uh, the second one, it, I just absolutely loved the shot at the end of Ed Harris, um, of Gene sitting down when everyone's mm. standing up and cheering and he just has to sit down and he just Emotion. gets emotional. And it's that like that first moment that you see, like they've all had to be under such control this whole time. And he just gets to sit and just let it kind of wash yeah. over him. And I just thought it was a beautiful moment. I, I love, really it. I love that scene. That was it. Yeah, I love the emotion on his face as well. I have things to say about the character and the actor in a bit. Um, one thing I wanted to highlight about the movie that doesn't really have a place is the music. Because come on, it's like just legendary. <laughs> come on, hello, <laughs> hello. <laughs> da, 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 hello. And the voices wouldn't be our podcast if <laughs> you didn't the military music. <laughs> and when it's like the big, oh my god, we'll come back to that kind of a little bit later, but not really. I just want to say the music is sick. I mean, that <laughs> is just so good. It's so tacky, but like it's perfect. Okay, so let's talk about who directed the film. Not. The, it was Film. Ron Howard. Uh, Ron Howard, of course, oh. the rare actor come director, who turns out to be more prolific as a director than he was as an actor, which is amazing because his character mm. in Happy Days was iconic. But there you go. It's lo- it's amazing. It's truly amazing. There's just something really cheery about that, isn't it? Where you just kind of see someone do that and the next thing they're just like this loved director who makes these awesome movies to mention a few he did beautiful mind i love a beautiful mind we'll do it one day mm. or i don't know maybe i don't love it maybe it's gonna be one of those ones that i'll revisit and be like Ugh. <laughs> terrible yeah. old people makeup um frost nixon and um which is great and into the heart of the sea which is also kind of one worth doing i don't know if you've seen the moby dick one that he did it's very technical. Um, no, about, I haven't actually. Yeah, it's super technical about like shipping, whatever you call that, on a ship. Oh, cool. Boats, big shipping. Yeah. Sailing. Um, sailing. Like big. <laughs> <laughs> I learned a lot. It was interesting. <laughs> shipping. Um, <laughs> cast. Are we ready? There's a lot of yeah, people cool. in this cast that are um, 90s people. Lauren Dean is super Which 90s. one is that? I mean, that guy. Oh yes, yes. Sorry, I know. But exactly this is one amazing right shot. Which yeah. when he's like, when he's, yeah, when he's in the middle of, he's Mister Handsome. When he's in the middle of sol- solving the problem, and he guess he has realization, the camera goes like way over his head and to the front. Ooh, hit the lamp. It's just a cool shot. Mm. Uh, another couple <laughs> of other people, um, Xander Berkeley, who's just super nineties. I mean, that guy's from twenty four. That's so nineties. 
Gary Sinise. Is it Sinise or Sinise? Sinise. Sinise, I think. I thought. Gary Sinise. Gary Sinise. Of Mice and Men. Let's go with that. Um, Anyone you want to highlight? I love love him. him. I love Gary Sinise so much. I just, I don't know why. I just, I just always love him. And I like his character in this. And I was heartbroken for him. Yeah. I, I, I love him always too. He's just a great American actor. I, I think I love him because of memories from Of Mice and Men because he would have watched that in school. So just stuck in my mind. Yeah. Um, Ed Harris. <laughs> so we love Ed Harris. Who yeah. doesn't? Ed Harris is great. There was like a period of time where Ed Harris was like Hollywood's best supporting actor. Oh, yeah. Like, he was just supporting actor in every movie for such a long time. Not in um, Abyss. Another one we have to do. Oh, so many. Stop naming movies, oh, Frida. Yeah. The thing about Ed Harris, which <laughs> it's... I always think about this. So there's this great bit in Sex in the City. And this is a tribute to Willie Garson, actually, because he's just died this week, who plays Stamper Bludge. Yes. Um, so when Mario Cantone's character, Anthony gets set up with Stanford and Charlotte's like, oh, he's an Ed Harris type. And he goes like, oh, that's hot. And then he meets up with Stanford and he goes, Ed Harris, try Ed, I have no Harris. Oh, <laughs> I just think that that's so stupid. But like, it's so funny. It kills me. Yeah. Um, okay. So main astronauts, we have Tom Hanks, obviously. Um, mm. Oh, is this our first Tom Hanks movie? Might be. I yeah, think he's it not is. The most science movie guy. Is he? Hmm. No, no, no. Yeah, he's not. I just I can't I can't think of anything else. We've done so many movies, and I was like, we've never talked about Tom Hanks. This feels we wrong. mentioned Captain Phillips like <laughs> last week. Yeah. <laughs> um, back. We have Kevin way back Bacon, when. He looks a lot like uh, Jack Swagger by the way yes Kevin Bacon they're They're basically identical (laughs) Jack Swaggart is more handsome Um, than Kevin Bacon the first shot where you see him oh my god (laughs) (laughs) hashtag sexy science oh yeah 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 but to perfection (laughs) like not this wasn't bullshit sexy science pillow talk this was like he was he was giving a real scientific explanation that just happens to be incredibly suggestive it was beautiful he was talking about absolutely perfect wasn't he yes and then the probe (laughs) she's like you don't really call it a probe (laughs) i was like yeah yeah you do (laughs) this is what i know and then you see him fucking great in shower in the shower with another one it's funny because um oh yeah i did watch the entire uh post-mission press conference and jack lovell does make a joke because he was like we also want to thank other people that were born into the mission my wife my wife marilyn fred's wife and everyone's like yeah and i believe the entire um airline staff uh, crew is here for jack <laughs> All the flight stewardesses, <laughs> and he's like, "Hey, you got a lot of you got a lot of help on this on the flight." So yeah, I mean, it was it's it's true. All right, so that's Kevin Baker, and then last but absolutely not least is the late Bill Paxton. Yeah, and he plays. Yeah, we'll talk about their characters, the actual people that were played later on. But you know, he does a good job. 
I think, is there anyone else in the cast that you want to highlight? Have I missed anyone obvious? Uh, I didn't... Uh, Not that that I can think of. Shout out to the two boys who are being Buzz Lightyear (laughs) and uh, Neil Armstrong. (laughs) I know, so good. Uh, All right, so uh, I guess we can talk about themes now. I don't really have... I have a bit of a... Mm -hmm. An idea, because I love the scene, that scene where Tom Hanks, Jim Lovell, is telling the story about how he got home when he was a fighter pilot and all the power went out, which allowed him to see the algae, which like led lit a path for him to go home. And he says something like, yeah, he's like, so uh, yeah, you you never know what's going to happen to get you home. And the wife is sitting there watching full Mm. of hope. So I thought... Hope, faith, Mm. what do you think? Community and survival through community. community Coming together, leaning on each other, having faith, trust. Mm. Yeah, I reckon it's all coming together. There's a line, wait, there's a line uh, that Jean's character has where they're saying like, um, fucking, oh God, what's his name? Xander Berkeley. Tobias from (laughs) NCIS. Um, and says like this is going to be a shit show basically and gene turns around and he's like i i'd like to think that this is this will be our final respect gentlemen i'd like to think this is going to be our first hour yeah (laughs) that's what that's the whole message of it is it's like shit may fuck up but we got this when will we know (laughs) all right speaking of which (laughs) it's time for our first section to wrap up the week abby when you watch this movie, was there any trope at all? Did yeah, I have one. <laughs> Go. Houston, we have a problem. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> it's just the thing. It's this astro talk thing that we do in space movies where it's always like, Houston this, Houston that, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, it's not how it works. And they don't say that kind of shit. And... If anyone wants to know what astronauts really kind of say and how they really talk, go back to our gravity episode because Frida explained it. Yeah, and also you can watch control room stuff. You can watch everything. Uh, yeah. uh, because of this fucking podcast, I cry about Challenger and Columbia like once a month because <laughs> I watch. Because oh, I no. watch, you know, the control rooms and all this shit. The thing that's amazing yeah. about the control room is that when, when the drama goes down, like with Columbia, there's never like a moment where everyone's like, oh. Because it's so steady and calm. They're never like, uh-oh. Yeah. It's, you have to be straining your yeah. eyes to figure out, <clears throat> oh, that was the last transmission. And like, that's, it's, it's steady Freddy. I have yeah. tropes. I have like, I have a main trope, but then I guess I have all these things, which I have to admit, it's possible <laughs> that Apollo 13 uh, originated the trope. So I don't want to be like, calling it a trope here's one okay (laughs) gentlemen it's been an honor yeah made the trip but do you know what it really made the trope of yeah clapping at nasa Uh, the the music the music swells and then Mm. symbols and everyone's like yay and then the horns come in yay we did it yay yay and then right after that gary sinise is like odyssey everyone's like cheering and he goes into his little thing he's like odyssey it's good to see you 
welcome home. Yay! Da, 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 da. <laughs> drama, drama, drama. Really good. If you don't cry, you're not human. You're a replicate. All right, my main trope, I call it <laughs> the king coming into a room trope. So at the beginning of the movie, it's like a tracking shot. I don't know if it's a tracking shot. Let's call it that. When Tom Hanks comes into the room and he's like, hey, what's the occasion? Hey, get oh, a haircut. Yes. Make sure they're so cold. Hey, up, up, up. Like, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's called the king coming into a room. Excellent. Okay. Oh, yeah, that's it. That's my trope. Okay. Okay. That's all that stuff out of the way. There's so much science. There's yeah. so much interesting stuff about this movie. Yes. The science environment, Let's before we get into the bits and bolts, literally, uh, let's just talk about everything else that isn't bits and bolts, starting with, I guess, some historical mm. context. As I mentioned before, by the time Apollo 13 came around, people were thinking that it was kind of routine, as I mentioned, or as the movie mentions, like, a lot. <gasps> How cringe was it, though? No, when with the whole like the world doesn't care and they were having to do that whole scene where they're like, oh, hello world with their video camera. It was just like everyone on earth going, oh, it's horrendous. Sorry. I I loved how cringeworthy that was. And and also true that the the baseball was on at the same time. And in real life, baseball was playing in the control room at the time even. And the camera does (laughs) show that. It shows that the, the... yeah, wow. and and if that guy said, "Oh, I'm going up in Apollo 18," that was one. You know, Ron Howard was very meticulous about those sort of details. That would have been true. Um, yeah, so that's the sort of historical th- context. Um, but just zooming into the Apollo 13 mission, and originally, mm. and this is in the movie, and of course, it's actually true, is that the crew that went in Apollo 13 was assigned for Apollo 14. But the pilot for Apollo 13 had not, he had an ear infection. He had not flown in a while and they felt like he needed more training. So they pushed forward the uh, crew from the Apollo 14 to the Apollo 13. That's not the only change that happened because in the movie, and again, this is completely true, the backup crew, um, the backup crew, the LEM pilot, Charles Duke, got the measles. Now, usually if somebody in the crew can't fly, they replace that crew with the entire backup crew. But of course, in this case, they couldn't do that because it was one of the backup crew that had the measles in the first place. So they did the move of replacing one pilot from the Apollo 13 mission with another pilot from the uh, the backup crew. Right. Um, what do you think about that? That wasn't mm. clear to me. Yeah, no, that was weird. I found that confusing. So okay. that makes more sense now because I'd forgotten that the guy who got the measles yes. was the backup crew mm-hmm. guy. And then obviously the whole thing was that Ken hadn't had it before. Um, but yeah, I found it interesting that they didn't like push forward another crew, but I guess they couldn't because they'd already yes. been pushed forward. So the only thing they could do was, but I mean, he was given the choice, but was he really given the choice in real life? Was Lovell really given the choice to delay it or to go ahead with the backup crew i don't think so because from his own words i haven't read the book but i I listened to the press conference it didn't he said that when this happened there was so at that point in the space race or the uh, nasa or the apollo 13 program there were so many well-trained people uh, that yeah 
you know, replacing um, Ken with uh, Jack was doable because there were so many highly trained people. Because I was kind of curious about the whole, what the relationship would be, you know? The movie dramatizes a lot that there was a problem with this, that this was a problem or that people were upset or that there was any friction between any of them. In real life, there was no problem and no friction. They had no issue bringing on Jack. Yeah. They had no regrets. They had no problem. He was highly trained. Um, and he smoothly was included in the team. Specifically in the movie, there's a, there's a couple of scenes where they're fighting in space or even when um, they're told about what happens and uh, Ken's character sort of goes, Jesus, or whatever it is. Or even even when Jack's character is told by the boss and he kind of has an outburst. And yeah, yeah to read it, this is a quote from Jack Lovell's book, actually. You will never become an astronaut if part of your response to fear and stress is to freak out and start punching the inside of the capsule. Yeah. <laughs> they were the scenes that it was those scenes in particular where I was just like, that's the dramatic effect. Because we know from these conversations and we've talked about like astronaut training and stuff before that the level of... um the level of expertise that these people have and the level of like coping ability that these people have. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no way that I believe that they would be up in space blaming, mm-hmm. blaming each other or insinuating that you did. I just do the tanks. What did you do? What to the gauge read? I just do the tanks. It's like, no way. I, I, I felt comfortable rewatching this movie and sitting back and kind of feeling like I understand that this is dramatic effect and I, I have respect for real life astronauts to know that they would never behave like that. They would never behave that way. They are so calm. When you hear them in the press conference passing questions to one another, they're just like, and Fred, why don't you tell everyone about the this thing that almost killed us? Yes, well, Jack, you know, the thing. <laughs> and, you know, I'm cracking a bit of jokes as well and... There was no yeah. friction in real life uh, at all. That was completely dramatized. I think, was it between Fred yeah. and Jack? Was they the two? Um, no, it was... Uh, it was Jim. Yeah, it was. Yeah, sorry. Yes, yeah. Fred is Bill Paxton, right? Yeah, it yeah. couldn't be further from the yeah. truth. Not at all. And, and even in the control room that they had a bit of like, you know, fuck shit kind of stuff as well. Again, I've, I've watched control room, like actual recordings. And like I said, no, no way. Yeah. Never would happen. By the way, Ron Howard's brother played one of the people in the control room. The one that was bald with just hair on the sides and glasses. That's Ron Howard's brother. Oh. Ron Howard's father is also in it oh. as well. He plays um, the, the priest that's comforting the family. That awkwardly pats the son <laughs> on the head when he's like, Mommy, you're squashing me. And this priest is like, there, there. Ron Howard's father. <laughs> <laughs> Loving the random facts. There's a lot of random facts about this. Um, speaking of Gene Kranz. <laughs> Yeah. And just going from control room and we'll, we'll talk about the launch um, and, and the weird sort of um, traditions or um, uh, what's that word? when pe- which, you know, What's the word when people like superstitions? superstitions? Yes. Jean Kranz's <laughs> vests. Yeah. So you know that white vest that's delivered in the box and you have to be like, Obsessed. okay, what's the vest about Ron Howard? Tell us. Okay. So... So there was a point where Kranz's team replaced another team at some point during one thing. And they were less experienced than the team that they were replacing, right? 
just like with the flight, it's a whole team working together, you know, and they had to replace a whole yeah. team. And Kranz was slightly anxious about his team, not that they were inexperienced or that they were young, they were younger, but that they might feel inadequate. So because, you know, they, they, they he didn't want them to think just because they were selected last, it doesn't mean that they were the leftovers. So to boost morale, Kranz decided that he wanted to have some sort of insignia for the team. And his wife, Marta, suggested a vest because Kranz loved the three-piece suits um, that were a style and she loved to sew. So in 1962, she suggested uh, to make him a white vest to wear at his console, as you see. And she would sew a white vest. It quickly became tradition. She would send over a new white vest at the start of every single mission. And then, and this wasn't in the movie, and then send over a second vest for splashdowns. Now, the second yeah, yeah. vests were very bright and flashy, meant to be worn in celebration. So for Gemini 9's yeah. splashdown, it was like a brocade gold and silver. And for Apollo 17, it's like red, white, and blue sequin stripes. How good is that? <laughs> it's so adorable. Isn't that fantastic? <laughs> It's so sweet. She kept sewing them for him as well. Then, uh, like, after he left NASA and he became a speaker, so she'd sew him, like, new vests for all of his speaking <laughs> engagements and stuff. <laughs> it's adorable. She said just because, like, people wanted to see the vests. So I was like, oh, yeah, I love okay. that it's, it's famous. It's so cute. Yeah. Any other launch traditions that you have heard about? I am obsessed with launch tra- traditions. I'm obsessed with it. And I loved it when they brought out that vest, when the box comes in and you're just like, here we go, here we go. <laughs> Get and out And the guy's like, vest. I guess we can go now. And I was just looking. <laughs> so the the thing is, is like, there's so much stuff and there's so much like rumor and things, but there are a, a few like kind of cute and weird little traditions that I just wanted to say to you because I just, I'm obs- I love it. So there's a NASA tradition that after a successful launch, a Kennedy manager will cut off a rookie's necktie just below the knot in front of the launch team. I just think it's so random and weird. <laughs> um, there's a US astronaut one where this one is mad. Just before the crew boards the spacecraft, they sit down for a last minute poker game that has to continue until the commander plays the worst hand. Only then does it end. <laughs> and then they get on the ship. Oh, that is... Are you serious? <laughs> I love so it. weird. Yeah, it's so weird. I, I love that. I love that. Any um, more? Any more? Come on, give us more. Yeah, yeah. I've got, I've got like three more. Uh, so ground engineers in Russia put down coins to be flattened as the rocket is being rolled out. Oh, it's just a thing. They great. always do it. And uh, this is great. This is great. The Russian, the main Russian one, right? I've got this and then I've got one that you're going to love. The, but the main Russian one is that the week before Yuri Gagarin became the first man to orbit the earth, he planted a tree. Two days before he boarded the um, Vostok, he got a haircut. And the night before his launch, he watched a movie. The movie was a Russian classic called The White Sun of the Desert. And then halfway to the launch pad, he realized he needed to pee. So he stepped off the bus and urinated on the back right tire. Ever since, every cosmonaut to fly from the Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan has followed suit right down to taking the bathroom break on the bus. 
It's so fucking mad. delicious. I love it. I, I don't know what the women do when they need to pee, but I love it. <laughs> um, but this is the best one. This is something that has happened way more recently. Uh, astronauts, and let's see if you remember. Some astronauts have begun taking a towel with them. Oh, yes, I know what that is. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? I love it. Yeah. That's so cute. That's my favorite. I love I'm, I'm yeah. rituals. Anyway, I love rituals. It. <laughs> it's just, it's great. I, yeah, I, I love a tradition. I just, I'm a fan. You know? Those are adorable. It's great. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah. And actually, another kind of, it's not a tradition, but... Um, in the movie, he's driving a sports car. Might have been a Corvette. And I yeah. thought, yeah. And then Ken Mattingly has also got a uh, got a sports car. And I was like, "What is it with the astronauts and sports cars?" Um, <laughs> and it's a thing. <laughs> <laughs> so I Not think surprised. that the first American in space, wherever he was, was given a Chevy Corvette as a gift when he came back. Um, oh, but, but sort of it was like after that, there was a propensity, it's sort of separate to that, but kind of eventually there, there was a propensity amongst wannabe space pilots to buy up used 1950s Chevy Corvettes because they were fast and affordable and gave them the sense of danger. Oh my God. They so badly craved when they weren't undergoing their rigorous training. <laughs> I... That's so weird because I just assumed I was like, oh, it's just the time or something, the the period that they just all have this. But yeah, no, I that that's mad though to think that like they needed something for an adrenaline rush. Yeah, that they would buy up like cheaper ones, like um, the cheaper sports cars, like or used Chevys or just whatever, because they had a, a meager wage. Astronauts did. So, but they just wanted to go fast and just sort of slowly became a thing where Chevy was like, wait a minute, <laughs> are we being associated with astronauts? <laughs> How handy. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. That's cool. Really cool. Yeah. So, so there's a great factoids, but speaking of uh, astronauts, I think it's time to introduce our three astronauts that went up on Apollo 13 flight, starting with Jim Lovell, who was the commander on his fourth space flight. He went up at age 41 he was a graduate of the Naval Academy and was a naval a naval aviator, a naval aviator and a test pilot. And he was selected for the second group of astronauts in 1962. He's still alive and he's 93. Next oh, up, wow. we have Jack Swigert. Such a great name. He is the command module pilot. And that was his first space flight. At the time... Oh, God. Mm. At the time, at the time, he was 38. He had, has, had a, B, a Bachelor of Science in Mechanical Engineering and a Master's in Aerospace Science. He served in the Air Force and was an engineering test pilot and was selected for the fifth group in 1966. Unfortunately, he died at the age of 51 from cancer shortly after being uh, elected into Congress. So he, he went on to do a, a career um, in politics, but he died before he was able to take office. And next, very sad, next up we have Fred Hayes, the lunar module pilot, 
also on his first space flight. He went up at 35 years old, Bachelor of Science in Aeronautical Engineering, and was a Marine Corps fighter pilot and civilian research pilot for NASA. Also a Group 5 astronaut. He is still alive and he's 87. So those are the three guys and their backgrounds. Um, what did you think about our? Uh, well, we've spoken a little bit, but is it you know what did you think about our our astronauts and the way that they were portrayed? Is there anything that you want to mention about them? Not, Not really. Yeah, I thought they yeah. were great. I mean, we understand that like some of the dramatic stuff is yeah. not what would yeah. be in their training, but other than that, I just thought, yeah. Yeah. Astronauts. Bill Paxton was so, <laughs> he seemed so similar to Fred Hayes. Just as like good, oh, really? kind of like, uh, he was like a prankster. Uh, and like, uh, like oh, a nice, okay. like a nice guy with like a family, big family. Now, special mention. The most special mention, I think, to the wives. The two wives. Yes. The wife of Jim Lovell, Marilyn Lovell, and Fred's wife, Mary. I cannot believe what their lives must have been. Seriously. Like. I can't. I yeah. just. The absolute trauma, <laughs> I think, of sitting there. Oh my God. Watching that. First of all, the wives, they provide the emotional center point or whatever. It's all the wives. Mm. But when the launch, when they finally get up, and it's like. Dun, 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 you see Mary just like crying up at the sky, like weeping. And I was just, I was just yeah. like, oh my God. And how about that wedding ring scene? Oh, oh, oh God. Yeah, it's true. She really lost the ring in the shower. That's... Yeah, her nightmares, like the space nightmares, like, oh my God. She was yeah. so amazing. But yeah, she's, um, there's a couple articles about her. A lot of the astronaut wives have long, long life friendships. They see each other a lot. They're friends yeah. with one another. Um, yeah. You can understand that because who else mm-hmm. is going to know what that experience is like? There's just nobody else. I think it must be the same for army wives as well. Ah, oh, for sure. Army <clears throat> husbands <laughs> too. Just want to just want to be clear. All right, science. Let's go. Yes. Um, all right. First science matter because you wrote this and I was like, what is she talking about? You wrote, did they really sandpaper the hair? And I was like, what the fuck was that question? I, I thought you were talking about, um, uh, 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 what's the name? The, oh, the head. I thought you were talking about Ed Harris's flat top. <laughs> and then I actually just, I sort of had a bit of spare time. So I was rewatching it. I just thought I watched the beginning again. And then I saw what you meant. Yeah. It was when they were preparing for the flight yeah. and they were sandpapering. Uh, to get the hair off instead of just shaving or using. Yeah, that was the thing. I was like, what is happening here? Because it wasn't, there was no razor. I think he was literally standing with sandpaper, sandpapering his so, chest. So I actually Googled, you know, I was like, this has got to be something. And I found a Reddit yeah. chain and someone's like, they use a very fine grit sandpaper and light mm. pressure. So it doesn't damage the skin. It basically breaks the hairs off at the surface. Uh, and someone's like, oh, it is real. Thank you so much for explaining it. I am mind blown. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Whatever. Rocks their boat. <laughs> so you're not alone, Abby. <laughs> okay. Now okay. that the sandpaper cool. is out of the way, I thought we'd just yeah. go into how much of the movie was true. Excellent. 
Firstly, upon launch, the losing the fifth engine, that happened. And the whole like, oh, as long as we don't lose the other ones, and that's fine. There's enough fuel and everything. Another thing that that was true was that immediately before the incident, Fred played a joke on them. That there was a loud noise. They're like, what was that? And Fred was like, oh, it was only, you know, me and the lamb. Um, And then right after that, the incident happened, which was another loud bang. And Fred was like, wasn't me. But they they originally thought Fred was playing another joke. Shit. Hmm. Yeah. So so they gave the uh, quote unquote live on air uh, stream. And right after that is when everything shit went down. Um, Houston, we've got a problem. It was Houston. We've had a problem. But um, Ron Howard thought it was more dramatic to say we've got a problem because we've had a problem implies it's already over. (laughs) Right. Jack did not. Jack is the one that said it, not Jim. They gave the line to Tom Hanks because, you know, Tom Hanks. Another thing that's true is so. So what actually did happen? And and this was sort of confirmed later. uh, Well, it was oxygen tank two exploded and damaged other oxygen tanks and blew the panel off the side of the service module. Right now, uh, what had actually happened with the number two tank is that it had originally been uh, installed in Apollo 10. It was removed for modification and during extraction, it was dropped just two inches, but enough to slightly jar an eternal fill line. Wow. It was replaced with another tank for Apollo 10, and then the exterior was inspected. Nothing was seen to be wrong, so then it was installed in Apollo 13. Because uh, the in- inside was not known to have been damaged. Yeah. So then the Apollo 13 malfunction uh, happened, and it caused that explosion, which just ripped everything around it. Um, because of this sort of slight problem on the inside, um, all oxygen stores were lost within three hours, along with loss of water and power and the use of the propulsion system of the service module. So uh, coming back to the movie, when they're, sh- you know, at that point where they said shut down the fuel cells in the movie, uh, Fred said, um, I say again, can I just copy that, that, or who, I think it was Jim said, you know, just confirm that, that you've asked that because once you, sh- you can't bring up a fuel cell once you've shut it down. Okay. Um, and that is true as well. That, that he, the astronaut, when he heard them say, all right, shut down the fuel cells, he had to ask for confirmation again. He says, am I, re- am I reading you correctly? You asked me to do this. Yes, we're asking you to do this. Okay. And they said, well, that's it. Our mission's. Uh, like we're not going to go to the moon right so that actually even that detail is true um so as the incident was happening and they're kind of like trying to calculate how bad is this it was the point where jim noticed venting out the side of the command module which happens in the movie everything's sort of chaotic and then he sees what's happening outside the window that is also true he was his concern was slowly rising as soon as he saw what was happening out the window he said we're venting something out the window and he assumes it must be the oxygen. And that was the point where they understood how serious it was. Wow. So shutting down the fuel cells, um, all this stuff is going on. It was very clear that the command module was about to lose power. The only way to survive was to go into the lunar module. Uh, and as it happens in the movie, they immediately have to go through the procedures to start it up. 
as I say in the movie, it's like a, 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 big, a very long set of procedures to start it up. Okay. Um, and part of that uh, is the alignment. So, uh, and this is what happens in the movie. And this was like their first thing that sort of, not the first thing that went wrong, but the first thing that they needed to do, which they failed to do, um, was to align the platforms. Uh, so when they're going from the command module to the lunar module, they have to make sure the platforms, whatever the platform is, but it is very important that once they go into the lunar module, they know where they are, they are in space. So they have to transfer that information of where they are in space from the command module to the lunar module so that they can actually fly the lunar module. Now, this is a procedure that was in the handbook and that they had trained for. And as you've said in many podcast episodes, they've trained for everything. Yeah. Like they have, uh, they have a protocol for like everything. But when they did the training, like part of it is they have to, um, and I'll explain this later, they have to actually use, get the arithmetic to get those numbers. And Jim had failed the arithmetic in training. So he oh. was doing the arithmetic. He did call down the ground control to the movie. In the yeah. movie, Tom Hanks says, ground control, can you just get, read back the numbers? I'm not sure if I get it right. That is true because he didn't have the confidence because he failed the arithmetic. Now, they got the numbers over to the LEM, and, but it failed, as it does in the movie. Like, it didn't work. Um, yeah, they'd practiced it before, but, like, yeah, they, they didn't do it well. So they actually had to um, figure out how to control it themselves. Okay. Which eventually uh, they, they sort of, after a while, figured out, which is um, – also shown in the movie that they just sort of had to manually figure it out how to control it because because you're using these controllers to say go here go there go here go there if the computer the flight computer navigation system doesn't know where the machine is yeah those it's you like how much do i move my hand to get there like you have no idea so that's where we are so far any questions so far before i move on to the maneuvers okay Am I doing this well? Is the part, yeah. So this is the part. Is the the maneuvers? Is this the bit where they have the um the Earth and the viewer? Not yet. No. Okay. All right. So go on then. Not Please. yet. <laughs> no. So first, they were on a path to get to the moon. They weren't on the path for like um the oh, free return. Yes, of course. So they had to get back on the path for a free return back to Earth. Yeah. Which meant to burn. So would they like burn off some fuel and like move into a, make a maneuver? Yeah. Um, so that was the first burn that they did was to get on the track to swing around the moon. Thank you very much. What's it called again? Slingshot maneuver? Yeah. Gravitational, uh, gravitational assist. Yeah. Yeah. So they were going to slingshot around the moon and come back. And this, all true. And the second, um, they did a second maneuver because as the movie says, and this is also true, when they come around the moon, they realized, oh shit, like given where we're going, we're not going to get to Earth till X time and we're going to run out of power X minus uh. Right. So they did another maneuver to bring the craft forward so that they could arrive okay. on Earth. Yeah, because otherwise they would have run out of water, air, power, everything. Yeah. So uh, that's the second maneuver that they did. And is that the Earth one? That is not the Earth one. No. I was paying so, so much attention. 
That is not the Earth okay, one. Okay, sorry. I will stop okay. asking that, that question. That was the one where they, they had the paper. They were like, bring us to here. We need to be here. And, you know, like the, the X's on the thing. Yes. So that was the second maneuver. And again, like it seemed like these things were just obvious and clear steps and didn't require like a whole dramatic like, oh, my God, we're not going to get to Earth in time. Um, yeah, it seems like in real life, like all of these things were trained for. Right. Very little was improvised. Like <laughs> nothing was improvised when I talk about. Okay. So then it comes to this whole dramatic thing about, uh, there's the power shortage, um, that they don't have much power. I'll get into that later because there is actually science behind it, but they were so low on power. I'll tell you how many amps. They were consuming an hour. Right. 11. 11 amps. Which is, that's the equivalent of switching on this coffee machine or whatever they said. <laughs> but I looked it up. That's how they're turning on. That's like in order to power a tumble dryer. Okay. 11 amps. A strong tumble dryer, but. Yeah. Fuck. So, yeah. I suppose yeah. the thing, though, is like in space. It's that classic thing, like, once you're on your path and you're not having to, like, like, you're just going to keep in motion. There's nothing there. There's no resistance there to slow down your motion. So you can just keep going. So I guess Mm. you can realistically just kind Mm. of sit there and wait. (laughs) So you are correct. um, But that's not when you factor in the other reasons that you need power. Well, I suppose Mm. you need to be alive. So yeah. So I'll I'll, I'll come into that in one second because that is interesting. The CO2 issue, um, that did happen. Okay. So that they did have a CO2. um, I'll explain, you know, exactly what it was, but I will just say that the solution was already invented in Apollo 8 simulations. Oh, okay. Yeah. And it involved the on-flight vacuum cleaner whatever it was <laughs> it was not that <laughs> like henry? The, that that was totally henry is that his name henry the hoover <laughs> oh. <laughs> it, it involved yeah it was already invented it's funny okay um don't put waste water over the edge also true they had to store wastewater because they didn't want to miss uh, like turn their trajectory in any way but it turns out that was like a, a figment of their imagination it wouldn't have done anything right but nonetheless they had to store all of their poop and their pee (laughs) in like and they didn't have much to do that so they had to really that that is something they had to improvise right because they had three bags was like a backup you know like they're three small bags to do it so they had to use god knows what um but but about the lack of power um so like you put the window shades down to cool the spa- spacecraft to let the sun out, right? Okay. Now, usually what happens is the power on the spacecraft slowly warms it back up. In this case, it didn't. Because there was none. Oh. They got down to 38 degrees Fahrenheit eventually. I think that's three degrees. Yeah, I'm like, sorry, mate. I cannot. Do not give me Fahrenheit. Fucking American sorry, movies. Sorry. <laughs> it's... It's... it's <laughs> This is their words, their words, their words. Um, <laughs> now, okay, let's get to this, the last maneuver they had to do. Things are going pretty well. Like they're solving the issues and yeah. things are going well. And this is working the problem. Like, we work working the problem. the problem. Work the problem. And then they realized that um, they're too shallow. 
Right. Uh, and then in the movie, it's like, oh, we, we, we were supposed to, you, we, this was calculated for like a lot of space rock that you were supposed to have. Um, and you're not carrying all of that weight. So they had to, they had to correct the trajectory and make another burn. They did not have computer control of that navigation system. Right. So they, yes, they used the sun and the earth. They just showed the earth, but they used the earth for the, um, the one, uh, degree of orientation and the sun for the other. And that is what they used. And it took three people so they all did that together. Yeah. Again, the procedure was developed for Apollo 8. Wow. So they had It was terrifying trained. in the movie. Like, that's a terrifying scene. Terrifying. Because also when you know what they're talking about, like how... Um, like how precise mm. the the angle of entry needs to be. And in the movie, it's like they're going fucking all over the place. And you're just like going, <laughs> how could they possibly have gotten that precision mm. with just like holding the earth in the viewfinder was just, I don't know. I found mm. it very stressful. Yeah, it's, it's, it's incredible. Yeah, the idea of tumbling through space and not knowing where your bearings are is... That's... that's yeah. I was surprised when I saw the movie that there was anything I could possibly add to this topic. And I was like, I know what that is all about. <laughs> I'll bring it up I'll, and I'll go into it in a bit. I'll go into that in a little bit. So, okay, what else happened to the movie? So that is true. Another thing about the movie. So finally they're going to the re-entry and they detach and they finally see the service module and the damage. And if right. you see the actual footage, because there's about four seconds of Fred's footage, that is what it looked like. Wow. That is true. I mean, they took one glimpse at it and they were like, oh, shit. <laughs> Do you think they were just like, yeah, they, like, they finally see it and they're like, holy fuck, we're alive. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. like the fact that they survived that is just crazy. That part was breathtaking. So, okay, what else happened? Was it true? Um, the whole thing about the re-entry maneuver. It's funny because IRL, they praised the control room for being so quick to respond with a new re-entry procedure. But in the movie, it was like this whole drama that it took too long. So uh, not true. Okay. Yeah, not true. Um, another thing that isn't true, Ken Mattingly never went into the simulator. No, not true. I was. There's I had people... that as a question and I never actually asked you that. Never. So yeah, okay. Yeah, it never happened. There are people that went in there, people that solved the problem, like not him. Right. <laughs> like they didn't need him. But they didn't yeah, No, I'm sorry, the movie needed problems. Gary Sinise, though. Like, just, <laughs> can we just be clear? Like, <laughs> they don't have it. I don't have it. Yeah, they did not solve any problems in the simulator. They solved the problem outside of the simulator. Okay. They went into the simulator for a dry run and to figure out how they're actually going to communicate the procedure as okay. well. Okay, here's something which is not true at all. Um, in the movie, they say, oh my God, it's blasted all the way up to the heat shield and they create this whole drama about the heat shield. Now, um, there were no qualms about the heat shield being damaged whatsoever. Oh. In the press conference, he said, I had no qualms. Did you, did you? All of them said, nah, that was not an issue at all for them. Okay. So that's pretty interesting. So that's sort of my run through of the movie about what was true and what wasn't true. Mixed bag, mostly true. Okay. Excellent. Shall we go into some nitty gritty? Yeah. 
I've got nitty gritty stuff that I was like, whoa. And one of them is the Apollo docking with the Lem. Yeah. That maneuver. Do you want to hear about it? Yeah, go for it. Okay. The Apollo Odyssey is built like this. You have um, when it goes up to the sky, command module and a surface module underneath it. So that's called the command surface module. And then below that is the lunar module, which left Earth packed in a spacecraft launch adapter below the command service module. Because as I mentioned before, it doesn't have a heat shield. So once the crew is on the way to the moon, you have to dock to the LEM. Okay. And And the maneuver is called transposition and docking. First, the command service module separates from all that shit underneath it. Um, from there, then the command module pilot had the job of turning the spacecraft around to line up the docking probe with the LM's, the LEM's drogue. So do you get that? It like detaches from the bottom right, and then flies around the opposite direction to dock and then it flies with it on its front. Okay. So that is like fucking sick. <laughs> That's like just sick. That's crazy. Freedom nerding out about space stuff. Something's weird here. It's so cool. Okay, fine. All right, let's talk about the power battery thing. Yes, so please what was that do, all about? because I was just what like, was sorry, about? what is happening here? <laughs> like, I get it. I okay. get like, oh, we need to reduce the power consumption. So how can we mm, possibly do yeah. this? But yeah, it was it's not, not even, it's not true. Oh, okay. Okay. So in reality, like the whole thing, it makes that Lorenz Dean's character is like, I know we can take power from the lem. In reality, they always knew they had to draw power from the lem. That was always okay. the thing. They had no power in the service module, none. So they were in the lem. So they knew that they would need to power up the command module batteries with the lem. Okay. Because the command module batteries had been, you know, tapped during this whole process. So they were depleted. So they did not have enough power for re-entry. So part of the re-entry procedure was indeed to reverse the flow from the LEM into the command module batteries. All right. Okay. So nothing was on the fly. They had, they knew this um, already, but the problem is actually really interesting. Okay. The command module batteries needed to be charged from the LEM, but the batteries were not designed that way. Actually, they were designed with a circuit breaker so that if there was a power surge from the LEM, it wouldn't fry the batteries. Right. They were only designed to go like the other way. So they had a circuit breaker. So it was like if they put too much power into the battery from the LEM, it would short it. So that was the whole thing about staying under a particular amount of current was that the batteries were designed to okay. stop <laughs> flow from the other direction. Okay. So okay. They, what they had to do was bleed power slowly without going above a certain current okay yeah that's excellent that's the whole thing fucking hell Mm. (laughs) that makes a lot of sense thank you (laughs) yeah they always knew they had to charge the batteries sometimes just one sentence is helpful (laughs) one sentence (laughs) yeah it was just this like plot device obviously okay yeah, it's fine. Under 20, got it. Yeah, cool. <laughs> All right, let's get back to, let's get down to the main thing that Frida's going to contribute. Although, do you know what? I don't really understand this shit either because it's fucking complicated. Right. So what I'm <laughs> explaining, it's hard. Pitch your role, right? They're talking right. about pitch the your, the role. So, and gimbal lock, it comes up a lot. 
And so I mentioned before that if you don't know where the spacecraft is, you obviously cannot do a guided maneuver with like the guidance control, obviously, because it's all computer system. Uh, and, And he does a bunch of arithmetic. So I was wanting to share like, well, what is this interesting maths and what is gimbal lock? Um, so if you have a rigid body in 3d space, I guess the question is what are the particular maneuvers that you have to make in order to move that rigid body from one place to another and pitch your and roll explain the different axes of rotation. Okay. So pitch is going, and this is all designed around plane. If you're not talking in plane speak in flight speak, it's called, um, heading, forget pitch bank and heading yeah it depends but with flight it's pitch your own roll so pitch is up so it's when the nose of the plane goes up from the ground if you can imagine or if you're nodding up and down that's pitch your is if you're going no shaking your head no right yeah and roll is if you're stretching like from one ear to the other ear okay so those are the different directions. And a gimbal, what a gimbal is, if you imagine if there's some sort of ring that represents those directions that are around the plane, yeah. one ring lying in one axis, one ring lying in the other axis and so on. The issue is, so the question is, okay, I want to make a maneuver and now I have to calculate how much pitch, how much roll, how much yaw. Now, these things are pretty fine if you can ha- think about them as concepts on their own or in 2D space, if you just have only a 2D image you have to rotate through that axis once you start combining them shit gets so fucked up (laughs) it gets so fucked up it's because like what you think is going to happen when you do something in your is not what happens actually in 3d physical space okay so how to get those numbers is incredibly complex mathematics there's a simpler thing like euler numbers are the simpler thing that works if you're sorry yeah if you're in 2D space and you want to rotate through one axis, Euler numbers, it's no problem. You go one direction, you go in the other direction, whatever it is, fine. You cannot use Euler numbers in 3D space because you risk something called gimbal lock. Gimbal lock is when one axis rotates and locks with the other gimbal, the other axis, and you lose one degree of freedom. Okay. So you end up losing a degree of freedom. So if you're using Euler numbers and trying to rotate something in 3D space, what happens is you go like, okay, you want to do the X, Y axis, boop. And then you sort of look X, Z axis. And suddenly you like pancake. Okay. You like lost an entire. So uh, I'll explain now why I know so much about this. Because <laughs> we work in brain imaging. And I had this really great idea <laughs> Of I had this thing, actually, I inherited it from my lung imaging days because obviously there's a natural symmetry to the brain and to the body um, of rotating it to align something like symmetrical or finding where is that axis of symmetry exactly mm-hmm. so you can compare sides or hemispheres. The, the point is that once I found sort of that axis and I was trying to figure out how to get it upright, I was like rotating each angle one at a time and using Euler numbers. And it was just so fucked up and so terrible. So then I launched into what is the actual way of calculating it. And that is called quaternions and never, ever, (laughs) ever go near quaternions. They are four dimensional (laughs) objects that describe rigid body rotation. And the thing also about Euler numbers is that it's like, 
you can rotate it, but where are you rotating about? Like, where's the point of rotation, right? Yeah. You can be rotating well out of where you are. So you do a rotation, you're like, oh, it was about the wrong point, and suddenly everything's disappeared. And then if you're moving around, like the way they were moving around, losing control, then you run into the, the problem of gimbal lock, which happens. If mm-hmm. you accidentally rotate your 90 degrees, it locks onto pitch or whatever, and then you've lost one degree of freedom. So the quaternions, it's like it's a rigid body rotation properly where things are actually rotating from the center of the body Mm. and it's, you know, it allows you to rotate properly, but the mathematics is incredibly complicated. So in order to get pitch, roll and yaw, you have to solve these massive matrices. That's what they're doing, by the way. Okay. It's one of the most difficult maths I've ever done and I completely failed. And and when I was researching for this episode, I was like, what do I know about this already? Yeah. And I looked, I had a notebook that I started just for this problem. Yeah. Oh Fail. Like it was just like the most, <laughs> oh, this isn't working. Move to this, try this. That's mm-hmm. not working. Copying things that I was like reading, trying to figure it out, like an utter failure to figure out the way this works. It's very complicated. Um, quaternions, that's what it is. It just so, sounds fake. <laughs> quaternions i think that you can't i mean honestly like once you get to quaternions like the day's over so i think um <laughs> it, it... can we move on from science is there anything yeah. else that i've missed no, that's fine <laughs> brilliant well done mate well done and i'm really glad Thank that you, you did that now because like i never would have known what gimbal lock or the pitch all roll thing would have been about so excellent it is just yeah, 3D body navigation is incredibly complicated, yeah. like control, flight control. Um, very proud of applications. Um, space, Thank you. Space speak. Good job. The fact that we <laughs> could adapt flight navigation science to brain imaging, even though I didn't <laughs> succeed, I really wanted this to be my thing. By the way, I'm really yeah. into this, like using the symmetry to like rotate automatically and like. <laughs> Yeah. And then everyone's like, don't you know, you can just register the template. I'm like, fuck you. <laughs> fuck registering the template. <laughs> this is Stop shitting on my dreams. <laughs> fuck registration. Sorry. All right. Uh, all right. Let's go into what the fuck. I've got, a, I've got a funny one. Ready? Okay. Play some music. Bam. What the fuck? What the fuck? Abby. Was there anything in this movie that made you say, what the fiddly fuck? There was. There was one thing that really, really pissed me off. <laughs> the son on his own in a fucking classroom with like other cadet people sitting in a classroom watching his father's re-entry on a fucking screen. Not with his family, not with his mum. He couldn't be let out to go home and sit there while they watched to see if his father was going to die or not. That really annoyed me. Where your family now, son? <laughs> but it's just like, what the fuck is he doing there? Why isn't he at home with the fucking his family? Why is he in this place? And then, and none, no one is looking at him. No one is acknowledging him until the end when, like, they they speak and we know they're alive. And then next, when they're all, all the other violently shaking like, him in the sh- way sh- men know how to show affection by violently shaking. Yeah, that have to teach the boys. Hug his fucking mother or something. Like. Yeah, you must teach boys that in order to show congratulations like a male, you have to violently shake. You have to violently shake oh, your friend. God. Anyway, yeah, yeah. I, uh, yeah. I loved, I loved the his him in his military school. 
That's so but American. I just like it was fine. You can show him in military school, and then you could fucking send him home for some moral and emotional support while while he figures out if his father is going to die or not. That it would be nice. Anyway, uh, what was yours? <laughs> Mine is the ginger in the mustard turtleneck. Okay. The one ginger, everyone else is in their short sleeved shirts with their dorky ties, with their two short ties. But of course, the one ginger, they have to dress in a mustard tie. Oh, this is in the even control when room, Ken, right? Ken, yeah, yeah, even when Ken Mattingly, whatever his name is, comes in, he's like, I gotta get my jacket because you know I'm going into the control room. Better put my jacket on, not ginger. <laughs> Ginger's in a mustard turtleneck. Amazing. So very good. That's my what the fuck. <laughs> All right. Final verdicts, baby. <gasps> Did it pass the, the Sam's test? No, moving on. <laughs> oh, fuck, moving on. Here comes the science. Yes, it did. Absolutely, yes, yeah. Yes, it absolutely does. It was so, apart from the weird battery bit. Yeah. <laughs> um. But the bit, I mean, yeah, like all that stuff was real and it did a pretty good job. Mm. Oh my God, I forgot the CO2. I forgot to talk about the fact that, well, I mean, it's pretty obvious, I guess, is that they're breathing out. Yeah. There's no oxygen. And so the CO2. Right. That's all I wanted to <laughs> yeah. say. That's all I wanted to okay. say. Okay, fine. Forgot the CO2. Fine. Yeah, it, it, it passes, obviously. I mean, it was a true recreation. Agreed. All right, final verdicts. Uh. I suppose four rockets. I'm a four too. Yeah. I mean, it's a great yeah, movie. Like it probably is more than a four. I reckon no, I just... I'm going to give it a bit higher because I really thought it was great all the way through, mm. and there's so much good science. I gave four to Blade Runner because I was like at the end, I was like, oh my god, yeah. <laughs> Wallace. But this one, I didn't feel that way at any point, so I'm going to yeah. give it a four point two. Okay, four point two. Fair. All right. Good job, mate. Thanks, mate. <laughs> I'm not being surprised that you did a good job of a space movie. That's not the intention. I just know that like it's we, we've talked about this. This is your therapy. So I know that that must have been difficult. For yeah, you. I <laughs> definitely could appreciate the incredible like the ingenuity, inge- ingenuity, and also mm. like the to appreciate, even though it's not apparent in the film, but apparent through my research is that the level of planning is just yeah. so awesome. And I I appreciate that because of because of Listen. you and and listening to the astronauts as well and their like yeah. lack of fear. I'm just like if they're not afraid. Like gosh damn, I don't have a right to be afraid. <laughs> yeah. All right. So that was the space movie. Um, so you have the next pick. Because we're in the midst of our zombie movie miniseries and technically this episode is going to come out the week after Halloween, I thought we should do something a little bit more kind of Halloween-y vibe. So we are doing The Mummy. And I'm so excited. Yes. 1999, Brendan Fraser, Rachel Weisz. Not this fucking Tom Cruise shit that came out a few years ago that just ruined Mm. this franchise. Fuck off. Brendan Fraser only. <laughs> yes. And also John Hanna as like the side guy. Oh, it's so Can't great. Wait. This is my, John the Hanna. way like you wanted to pick Apollo 13 because it was like a comfort movie. This is my comfort movie. Yeah. I'm just like, Yay. I'm so excited. I, I haven't it. watched it in a while actually. So I'm I have watched it in ages. Excited. Yeah. Can't wait. Brilliant. Okay. 
So we'll see you then in two weeks time for the mummy. And next week we are starting our zombie series, which starts with Dawn of the Dead, bitch. <gasps> Can't wait. All right. So catch us then. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at science at the movies at gmail.com or on our Instagram at science of the movies. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye bye. Space. The final frontier for Frida. <laughs>